Welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where every week we promise good information about the business of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. Got an amazing show today. Every week we try to give you something of value, something you actually can take home, apply to your own business. Think about when you're in the tractor, when you're driving across Kansas or Nebraska, as I am today, something about the business of food and agriculture. Today's subject, making what we are good at making versus making what we would be very good at selling. Some of you know, if you've been to my speeches, you've seen my shows, you know that I was a corporate guy. I used to sell lighting fixtures. As I joke all the time, selling lighting fixtures is what you do with a degree from Purdue University in agricultural economics. You sell lighting fixtures. I quit my job selling lighting fixtures to become a political comedian, and then, of course, I worked my way into being an ag talker, and now we're an ag podcaster. But in my sales job, I learned something very valuable. If you've ever had a recessed can light in your house, that's a pretty simple thing. It's just a piece of metal that goes in your ceiling and then light comes out of it. Well, there's this trim. That's what you look up and see. Black trims were the most popular throughout the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and early 80s. And then about the late 80s, early 90s, white trims were developed. It's just a white piece of plastic. And people at our company fought this and said, why would we produce white trims? White trims don't control the glare. White trims don't work to make the light fixture as it was designed to Put the light where it needs to be. Refract those beams where they're supposed to be. Why white just creates more glare. And you know what? It's an 80 cent piece of plastic. Place down the road from my company, which was Cooper Lighting, place down the road, Juno Lighting decided they didn't care. The consumer wanted white pieces of plastic. They sold them white pieces of plastic. We lost about $40 million of market share in a year and a half's time because we wouldn't produce white plastic trims. Do you understand agriculture where we're going with this? We're talking about giving the consumer what they want versus making what we're good at making and then trying to sell it. Why am I telling you about this? Because just today I put on social media an article that Chinese geneticists had developed a pig with 24% less fat. And this article went on and on and on in an agricultural stance of how amazing it was that we could produce this hog with 24% less fat. It was going to be wonderful for pig production. The problem is our consumers don't want a leaner hog. In fact, they're screaming at us because the hogs are too lean as it is. We have pigs that are too lean now. Pork chops are drying out. There's not enough flavor. There's not enough fat. Point is, every business does this. Every business gets a commodity mindset and we get really good at saying, hey, we can make this. Let's figure out how to sell it. Hey, we just made more of this. Let's figure out how we can sell it. This happens in every industry, but agriculture, I would dare say, suffers a little bit more from commodity mentality than others. Joining me today is probably the best guest I've had. And I mean no disrespect to any of the other guests I've ever had, but this guy and I actually communicate via email. We keep up with each other on social media. I met him only through the computer and through the phone because I was given one of his books. I'm talking about Mark Schatzker. He's a Canadian. He's joining me from Toronto right now. Very accomplished author. He used to write for countless publications, newspaper articles, Condé Nast Traveler, the New York Times, even though I don't read the New York Times. He also has two books, amazing books. I've read them both. The most recent one called The Dorito Effect, all about how flavoring has changed our perception of food as it was normally and naturally intended. I'm talking about artificial flavoring. And then his first big book, Steak, One Man's Search for the World's Tastiest Piece of Beef. I know I have a lot of meat people following me on this podcast. I know you have friends that are meat people. 
Do yourself a favor, do them a favor, share this podcast. I welcome to the show my friend and foodie, author, accomplished social media guy, and also like me, a paid talker, Mark Schatzker. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> After I built you up like that, a simple hello will not do. Tell us more well, I, about I'm you. sitting here thinking about, you know, white trim and pork chops, and I, I think I have to remodel my kitchen and start buying better quality pork. Uh, light fixtures, uh, I, I gave you that parable or that anecdote, if you will, because it's the exact same thing. The engineering guy, I remember him distinctly. His name was Fred Madel. Fred was very much like some people in say agriculture, some people in food, as some person that works for your company or in your organization, even if you're not an ag person, where they say, well, we're good at making black trims for those light fixtures. And black trims were designed from an engineering standpoint to control the glare, blah, blah, blah. Well, Mrs. Homeowner is gonna buy 47 light fixtures. And you know what she wants? She wants a white piece of plastic in her ceiling so it doesn't stand out. Give the consumer what they want. That's what we're talking about here today, Mr. Schatzker. Your thoughts on this topic? Um, I agree with you. I think uh, I, I've run of this over the years with agriculture, where I have a message of identifying a problem and then saying, this is what we can do to change it. And if we change it, everybody will win. And you kind of run into a brick wall in the ag world because uh, people take, often take the idea of change as a threat and they're hostile. Uh, I am, don't think Anyone who's in farming, anyone who's in agriculture has nothing to fear from me because really I'd like them all to make more money because if you sell better products, you make more money. Yeah, we talk about that a lot here on the Business of Agriculture, that's my podcast name, that you are a guest of because I point out again and again and again, yeah, we know we're good at making stuff, but we're not as good at making money sometimes as we could be if we realize the marketplace has changed. As I commonly point out, it's not 1946 anymore. Coming out of World War II, just coming out of the Great Depression, and then you know rations were happening here in North America. You couldn't get rubber, gasoline, bread, butter, meat, whatever. It's not those days anymore. Food is plentiful. In fact, it's commoditized. So I believe that we should, instead of saying, how can we make more pork? We should say, how should we make better pork that we can put 10 more profit percentage points on and make more money? Yeah, I agree. You know, pork's a really interesting example because that's, that's a good example of where something that everybody loves turned into something people love a whole lot less because we kind of got confused about it. So there was a whole anti-fat message of the 1980s and that got people producing leaner pork because everybody thought they wanted leaner pork, but then of course they taste it and they don't like it. So then you're, you know, you're dumping barbecue sauce in your pork. This gets into something I talked about the Dorito effect. When your food is bland, you have to do all sorts of things to it to make it palatable. And usually by doing that, nutrition just nosedives because you're, you know, adding sugar and mayonnaise and all sorts of things. Um, but in a very strange way, we, we took this, you know, there's nothing, a great pork chop is, is a thing of beauty. It's a masterpiece. And it is so hard to get that now. Uh, what you know, you used to be able to buy it at the supermarket decades ago. Now you need to know a farmer who, who you know, who's doing it the old-fashioned way, who really knows how to do it. So that's a good example of where something got warped for reasons that are kind of hard to wrap your brain around. Um, and it's very frustrating because I think for a lot of farmers, uh, you know, pork is a, like like all the meats we raise. The the main market is commodity, and it's really hard to win at the commodity game if you're a producer on the ground floor, unless you're really, really huge. Um, but I do think there's a huge opportunity to market better quality pork, because there's all sorts of meat lovers out there who are willing to pay more money. If you go to a lot of you know fancy butcher shops in big cities, 
you would be blown away by what some people are paying for meat. Yeah, now that's the thing. First off, I've done a ton of paid presentations for pork groups. I've got wonderful pork audiences. I work for the National Pork Board. In fact, I've got two pork events coming up next month. So I want to clarify here, as an agriculture person talking to a food person, we're not saying quality is bad as in, oh gosh, it, it looks like it was uh, you know, hit by a bus and it laid around. No, 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 no. The, the refrigeration is fine, the package is fine, the product is extremely acceptable, but over 30, 40 years of, shall I say, misguided, misguided um, uh, directives, misguided science, we took the fat and the flavor away from these animals. Uh, when I was a kid in 4-H, I remember we wanted really lean pigs in the 1970s, early 80s. We just kept making leaner and leaner because that was when low fat, diet, uh, low cow, all this came on the thing. And it was decided that fat was going to be the problem that was going to kill us all. We know that not to be true now. In fact, <clears throat> I talked before on this podcast about Nina Teicholz's book, The Big Fat Surprise, that we absolutely know that the Mediterranean diet and all that research that was in the 50s that produced this huge movement in the 70s and 80s was completely off. That dietary fat does not make you fat. In fact, it satiates, it fills you up. Uh, milk fat does not make people fat, nor does the fat on a pork chop. So we need to bring the food, the fat back. That's why I thought it was so interesting that in this day and age, in 2017, an article touted a 24% less fat pig. Completely, in my opinion, misguided. You agree? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, there's there's been lean pork breeds like that for a while. Um, I, I don't know what they're good for personally, but, but not making pork chops, that's for sure. And, you know, you talked about pork production, and I mean, I've done programs for all these people. They'll grow whatever makes sense for them. I mean, they're in the business of making money. Uh, if, it just, if you wanted, uh, uh, you know, red concrete in your driveway, then by golly, I bet you the local concrete company would say, great, all of our mixtures are running around with red concrete. Now, the industry would produce what the consumer wants, but there's, first off, a genetic timetable of, oh, we've got to breed fat back into them. And also, they're scared to take too much of a chance because they say, I've got my margins fixed right now on commodity production. I can make enough to get by. And I think it's going to be a slow mover, but it's the right move to make. Well, the other problem, too, is that consumers don't always know that much about quality. And fat is more expensive to produce than lean muscle mass. So it's, there's a cost to putting fat back in. And people are very afraid of how consumers are going to react to a price increase. Um, it isn't just pork though, that this happens with, though. I wrote about this in the Dorito Effect. Tomatoes are a great example. Everybody knows that store-bought tomatoes now taste like, like wet styrofoam. Um, and yet we all have in our head that memory of a great tomato that maybe you know, your grandmother grew in her garden when you were 10 years old. And, and we're always lusting after that primordial, incredible tomato. And it's gone. And it's gone for a very simple reason, because we bred the flavor out of tomatoes. Because we've been trying to essentially boost the yield, boost the production, and that has come at a cost of quality. Quantity has come at the cost of quality. So when you select for all these traits that the agronomic traits like thickness of skin or productivity or disease resistance, if you don't select for flavor, you're going to lose it. It's reverse evolutionary pressure. Tomatoes don't have flavor for the same reason that we don't have tails anymore. So this is one of these strange things that happen in commodity markets. Um, because it's driven so much by price, you can often lose the very quality that attracted people to the product in the first place. 
Yeah, and we we got to get over this because a lot of my ag people say, well, it's too expensive. You know, Damon, you're out here talking about these foodies and these affluent people, but there's people that shop at Walmart. I agree. And I'm not out here being an exclusionist saying, oh, I'm rich and I can afford stuff and these other people screw them, let them starve. Not by any means. But the entire thing on pork by going lean, I think missed, missed what pork always was and could be again. It was always a fatty product and people did use lard in baking and bacon was a fatty product and, and pork chops had fat on them. I had a pork roast about a couple months ago and I was really disappointed just because it did get too dry. So I think we're on the right path here. Let's keep talking about meat. By the way, you're listening to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. Well, by the way, though, speaking of um, fatty meat and health, um, the fattiest meat I've ever seen, both beef and pork, is in Japan, where they like their meat to be as like more marbled than you can imagine. And they are probably the thinnest people in a developed world. So I just don't think we should be afraid of it. The, the thing that people forget about fatty meat is that it's more satiating. So if a pork chop's got a bit of fat on it, you don't eat as much. Yeah, when you realize that, it's not as though you're going to sit down and eat three pounds of fat trimmings. Uh, it, it does fill you up. It does taste good, and that's why we do it. All right, I'm talking to Mark Schatzker here on the business of agriculture. He wrote a book called Steak, One Man's Search for the World's Tastiest Piece of Beef. The reason I got him on the phone is because he understands that maybe we're selecting for the wrong thing. This article about the Chinese geneticist that put 24% less fat on a pig, and I'm saying this is the wrong thing to do. Consumers want fat. They want moisture. They want taste. Your book, Steak. Let's talk about what's happening in the business of beef, pigs, chickens, everything. It's getting bigger. These carcasses are getting immensely big. We take pigs to market about 285 pounds. When I was a kid, they were 230 pounds. I'm not sure the consumer ever asked for this. Your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with you. I think I think the consumer often wants lower prices and then that can incentivize a production model that, that brings in these weird things. I don't think we'd have as much continental blood in the beef world if it wasn't for this kind of pressure. I don't think a lot of those moves were made to make better beef. It was just to get the, the kind of the growth curve where people wanted it and to bring the price down to where people wanted it. Um, most of the people I spoke to in the beef industry agree with me, um, but that the market doesn't incentivize that. So it's it's really tricky because it's like trying to turn around an aircraft carrier because I know lots of cattle ranchers and cattle farmers who would love to make better quality beef, but they say, I don't get paid for it. So what am I supposed to do? Take a bath, uh, you know, purchase heirloom Hereford and uh, Angus genetics and then to get killed when I take them to market. So the question is, the big question for me is how do we turn this around so that people, people, the products are there and people can pay for them so that everybody wins. Uh, but when you when you kind of bottomed out, it's really difficult to turn it around. One thing you just pointed out, Mark, you said that uh, a producer of any of these things says, I don't get paid for quality. There would be people that are listening to this podcast right now who would disagree. They'd say, no, wait a minute. Beef, for instance, there's a thing called the Certified Angus Beef Program. And if I sell uh, semi-trailers of beef, it gets graded at the production, I'm sorry, the processing facility based on how it scores on the grid. Now, here's the thing. You pointed out in your book that ribeye fat flex do have some uh, influence on flavor, but it's not the only influence on flavor because you talk about this from a flavor standpoint. Expand. Yeah. So to, to put it in the big picture, the, the USDA developed its grading scheme in, I think, 1926, and they were basically looking for fat. Uh, as long as a critter wasn't too old, fat was better. 
I think it was actually a good scheme back then. I think it made sense. It was a good, you know, you can't sit there and taste every cow you kill. So that was a pretty good way to do it. But what ended up happening is they incentivized the industry to create cheap fat because they said, well, we'll pay more for fat. And then the industry said, okay, well, it was a race to produce the cheapest fat. They've gotten very good at doing it. It's uh, If you look at the uh, how old cattle are when they come off the, the feedlot now versus the 50s, it's like something like almost a year younger now. So we've gotten much, much more efficient. But have we paid for that in quality? I would say yes. Um, we talked about... I would say that we've, we've paid for it in maybe the taste outcome, like the tomato. And I'm only saying that because you you keep saying quality and you're a food guy. And as an agriculture guy, I have people that will look me up and shoot me with a high powered rifle. If they, if I, they think that Damien Mace is saying their product is not of a safe. And no, no, no. I, I'm not. I, I'm, when I say quality, I'm obsessed with flavor. So everybody needs to know that I'm obsessed with flavor. So when I, I'm really talking about flavor here. So we talk about fat being flavor, and that's in fact not true. And we all actually know this isn't true, because if you put a spoonful of lard in your mouth or a spoonful of Crisco oil, there is no flavor there. It's kind of rich and thick, but there's no flavor. Fat is a great vehicle for flavor. So where does that flavor come from? It comes from what the critters eat. And if you only feed them really you know, highly productive uh, varieties of corn and soybeans, you'll get them fat but you won't get the flavor. Now, I'm not someone who's saying um, that there's a lot of ways to get flavor in there, but you really need to think about the feed. You need to think about how old they are. When you kill them too young, we all know that veal has no flavor compared to beef. Um, the younger they are and the less flavor that's literally in the food that they're eating, the less flavor there will be in the meat. The other thing we talked about here was, and, and I do make this point that my ag folks uh, they're out here. They, they want to produce something. They always equate production with staying in business. And I wrote an article about that after I had read your book, The Dorito Effect, that in the 80s, which I lived through, they were a ter- it was a bloodbath in agriculture. Uh, we got there because of too great of production. Uh, you know, it wasn't the wheat embargo that hurt North American agriculture. It wasn't the last things. It was because of, we produced so darn much. And so the only way to stay in business, though, while people were going bankrupt down the road, was to be efficient and keep producing. So farm people, agriculture always is a production-oriented business. And you got people like you and me saying, it's time to now produce, but produce something less quantity, quantity and greater taste, greater flavor, greater story. It can take longer to get to market. Broilers take about 43 days to get to, I think I saw that chickens are now getting butchered, some of them at 11 pounds. Now, a chicken person can correct me on this if, if we're getting them to 11 pounds in 43 days, but our consumers never asked for a chicken breast that was the size of a dinner plate. And we're just about there right now. I, honest to God, my wife cooked up some chicken breasts. They were fantastic chicken breasts. They looked just great. We normally, in the old days, we would throw one chicken breast on each of our salads. One night a week, we have a chicken chef salad. This time, we split one half of one breast because that's all we needed. I'm not sure the consumer wanted that big of a carcass of a beef, of a broiler, or of a pig. I think they want flavor, and we keep giving them quantity. Yeah, I agree. I I think chicken is the greatest example of where meat went wrong. It's really interesting. If you look at the cookbooks, um, uh, as early as uh, 1962, when Julia Child wrote her famous book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, she said, you know, beware of these modern plump-looking birds. they look great, but they have no flavor. She said they taste like uh, teddy bear stuffing. And if you follow what various cookbook authors are saying over the years, they kept saying like chicken's losing its flavor, chicken's losing its flavor. Well now, cookbook authors don't say chicken's losing its flavor. They don't even know that chicken ever had flavor. They say that chicken is a blank slate. 
It wasn't always a blank slate. If you look at the old recipes for chicken, they say just put salt and pepper on it. I read this stuff and I thought, you people had no taste buds. How did you eat this garbage? Salt and pepper? What are you talking about? You need like curry powder or barbecue sauce or something. If you actually get an old style chicken that grows a little more slowly and you know eats grasshoppers and blades of grass and stuff, the flavor is absolutely incredible. It's just that it, it fills you with happiness. It's so delicious. And that is completely gone. I would say the vast, vast majority of people have never tasted what chicken is actually supposed to taste like. And I think it's terrible because we end up making it less healthy because you have to you know, melt cheese over it or put barbecue sauce or ketchup or something on it. Um, but our food is less delicious and food is nourishing and food should feed the body, but it should also feed the soul. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I love nothing more than a product that you don't have to season the hell out of and, and uh, coat and top and uh, condiment the heck out of. Talking to Mark Schatzker, author, foodie, guest of this podcast, The Business of Agriculture. Mark, the future of food. Is agriculture going to get better? Are we going to answer the call? For instance, are we going to stop seeing articles about Chinese geneticists figured out a way to put 24% less fat on a hog instead see an article that says Chinese geneticists or American geneticists or anybody in agriculture for that matter just figured out a way to put flavor back into the tomatoes to make our pork what it once was, to make our chickens taste like grandma's chickens. Is that something we're going to see? Yeah, I think we will. I mean, I see things going in two different directions. You see things like uh, plant-based meat where they're uh, – they're taking things like peas or soy and ultra processing it and creating these, you know, plant-based burgers that quote bleed. Um, that's one direction it can go. I don't particularly like that direction. I think the other direction it can go. It, I, I'm not one of those people who wants to turn back the clock and pretend it's 1942 again. I don't think that's going to happen, but I think we can learn from the past. I think the past can inform the future, but the future is going to be a very different place. And I think we can care about flavor. In fact, when it comes to tomatoes, there's really good news. Um, there's a researcher, a scientist at the University of Florida, who essentially did something very simple. He crossed a modern tomato with an heirloom tomato and got the best of both worlds, which is to say a disease-resistant, highly productive tomato with great flavor. If we could get tomato growers to grow this tomato, you could walk into a supermarket and buy tomatoes that you bit into and you said, wow, that's delicious. That really can happen. Uh, and it's great because I think tomato growers can make more money selling that tomato. But like I said earlier, we got to turn this aircraft carrier around because right now the tomato growers will say, well, why should I grow this tomato? I don't get paid for flavor. So why would I bother caring for flavor? So we somehow have to get people to care about this. Now, it's not all grim because if you look at things like wine or cheese or craft beer or even things like pork, um, you know, there's some, there are some upmarket brands of pork now, or even things like organic, for example, we've seen where a group of consumers can say, I care about this trait and business can adjust. So I truly think there is hope, but it, it sure doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. And actually I hold out tremendous hope that the business, I, I don't want there to be regulations that force it. And I think the business is adjusting because of all those things you just said. Who would have, what Joe Sixpack that drank Budweiser uh, 30 years ago ever said, I'm going to hit a point 30 years from now where I walk into a liquor store and Budweiser has two slots in the cooler over here. And then the next coolers and the next coolers down, there's 30 feet of beers. I don't even know that I ever heard of. And that's going to happen somewhat in food. Actually, I think it's going to be fantastic because the modern agricultural innovation that we do have, if we can bring back, we're not talking about being able to feed 
seven and a half billion people by having two chickens running around on two acres of pasture. I think we'll bring back flavor using some of those methods, but also with modern productivity and modern techniques is how I think it's going to happen. I agree. I don't think, yeah, like I said, I don't think it's going to, it's not going to look like the farm in uh, um, you know, a little house in the prairie or something. It's, it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. It will be indeed. Um, your prediction on meat, milk, and eggs. Any, any, any big thoughts here? You love meat. You eat steak. You wrote a book called Steak. What do you see happening? What's going to, in the next five years, what are we going to see change in the, in the product of protein category? Uh, I think, you know, because of the popularity of a lot of this plant-based stuff, I think the sort of terrestrial real meat segment will probably try and make its own pitch for, um, for kind of purity and quality and healthfulness. Um, maybe some of the things we're starting to see in terms of, uh, you know, mixed farming where people are rotating crops and bringing in ruminants uh, to graze cover crops and things like that. Maybe that'll start to become part of the message that people sell. Uh, people have become so alienated from some of the monocultures that I think there's a lot of good news stories to sell. So I think we'll probably start to see things go that way. Probably. I've been making the point that cover crops are going to be a more uh, integral part of agriculture anyhow because soil is the most precious asset we own. And then you figure, um, what if we now have a, a deal where this large operation can do the cover crops and then also graze it with something and then maybe those animals still move to another place. I'm not sure where it all ends up, but I know that we are going to continue to evolve and we're going to make flavor, I think, a bit more of a priority. Although, Topics like today, when they're hailing the 24% less fat in a pig, I'm not sure we're accomplishing what we want to accomplish. Talking to Mark Schatzker, friend, foodie, farming, farming fan, and uh, he's got some new ideas. I hope you, I hope you liked his ideas. I know there's a couple things here you might have disagreed with, because here on the business of agriculture, we talk about such things. Mark Schatzker, closing thoughts on food and farming in North America. Um, my closing thoughts would be for people in the world of ag, uh, the, I guess the main ag system, the commodity system often isn't good to the little guy. So what I would say is what I really look forward to is embracing a world where, uh, farmers and ranchers that work hard to create a product that they care about is recognized by the marketplace. I want them to make a better living, to make a more stable living and to make more money. Thank you very much. That's Mark Schatzker. If you want to find out how to find him, he's, uh, he's, he's got some contact information. He's all over social media. Give it to us real quick, Mark. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Mark Schatzker. I'm on Facebook, and my two books are Steak and The Dorito Effect. Thank you for joining us here on the Business of Agriculture with me, Damian Mason. You can find me at Damian P. Mason is my Twitter handle. Damian Mason Professional Speaker is my Facebook page. You can find me at DamianMason.com. There will be a link of this. You can find it. You can listen. You can share it. Please do so. Join us again next time where we talk about the business of agriculture. Till then, stay profitable.